Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Coughlin, President and CEO of MassBio, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the State of Possible podcast. Before we begin our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the support of our sponsors, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Morgan Stanley, and Marsh McLennan Agency. And now, a word from Thermo Fisher Scientific. COVID-19 has spread across the globe with devastating effect. Thermo Fisher Scientific's scale and depth of capabilities have never been more vital. And our mission to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer has never been more important. At Thermo Fisher Scientific, we remain at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus and are partnering with biopharma customers who are working to develop COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. And that's just the start. Learn more at fisherside.com. That's fishersci.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the State of Possible podcast. As we near the end of 2020, we look back at what has likely been the most disruptive year we've ever seen, and at the same time, breathe a sigh of relief. The biopharma industry has achieved an incredible feat, developing multiple COVID-19 vaccines and beating all odds for a development timeline that typically takes five to 10 years. Amidst a global pandemic, the industry continued its life-saving work, pouring investment into R&D for all disease areas, providing new hope for patients. At the same time, major disruption this year has created a renewed sense of opportunity. As we look ahead to 2021, I have asked today's podcast guests to peer into their crystal balls and offer their thoughts on the coming year in which exciting developments will advance our industry. Joining me today, ladies and gentlemen, are Jeremy Levin, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer at Ovid Therapeutics, and Nina Shelson, General Partner at Canaan Partners. Welcome, Nina, and welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Bob. Wonderful to be here. Hi, Bob. Terrific. Thanks for having us on. Oh, we are so thrilled to have you here with us. I want to dive right into it, right? We don't. We only have a short window of opportunity, and we have so much to cover uh, in, in the topic of unintended consequences of COVID-19, right? COVID-19 has completely upended life as we know it, disrupting the way we work, socialize, educate, and travel. It's, it's dramatically impacted personal, business, and government budgets, and it's led to dangerous delays in care. But, you know, on the same note, it hasn't been all bad, as the pandemic has also forced companies to create new efficiencies in how they do business. And it's also spotlighted the need to address things like racial inequity in our country, right? So let's let's dig into this a bit better and understand how COVID-19 will impact 2021. Jeremy, why don't you start? Uh, no crystal balls here. If we'd taken the same date one year ago and you'd had exactly the same conversation, I guarantee you we would have been 100% wrong. I can't guarantee today, Bob, that anything I say will be in any way better as a prediction. That said, look, we see a couple of trends here which are dramatic. As we see the waves of uh, vaccines emerging over the next year, we'll have a much better idea as to which of these vaccines are going to have a better impact or lesser impact. And that's going to have a dramatic effect on medical practice with regard and which populations get it, when they get it, and how they get it. 
with regard to COVID specifically, and we'll get into other technologies, I hope, and other the side, the positive side effects of sure. COVID. Absolutely. There, there is the high likelihood that you'll see with the new administration a much more focused response from the CDC, much more education. If the new FDA leader is one that will learn from these experiences, we have the opportunity in the FDA for streamlining processes, not just in uh, vaccines, but in fact elsewhere, because there's a lot to be learned from this last episode. So with regard to this, I think you know COVID will dominate the first half without a question. You'll have the continued uh, excitement around uh, the CAR-Ts, the new cell therapies that have been causing so much interest and so much uh, speculation in oncology. But it's a little difficult to see beyond that in the oncology arena. I do think, though, one of the direct consequences is a rollout of an enormous number of very interesting antivirals next year. They'll all be entering the clinic, so we'll have visibility not just on mechanism, but actually on impact. So I'll stop there because Nina is obviously financing it. our host of these different types of companies and we have a slightly different uh, uh, perspective. And then we can talk about the political side of this as well, if you wish. Yeah, and let's hop over to you, Nina, but let's let's re- let's remember to go back to failures and, and let's talk a little bit about failures as well, Jeremy. But Nina, what are some of your thoughts? So I think, you know, a couple of major things that, that come to mind. We're, you know, we're going into the major uh, second shelter in place throughout the country now with massive amounts of uh, preventive and elective health procedures being deferred and early diagnoses being missed and health behaviors not being taught or re- reinforced and huge amounts of anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, inequity continuing to escalate. And then we're having a healthcare infrastructure that's being profoundly uh, disrupted and buckling under the pressure of this pandemic with massive financial losses and business closures across medical practices and large institutions as well. So we're going to see major kind of healthcare consolidation already. Some 6,000 private practices have closed this year. So we're going to need to see, I think, some, some continue to see some massive changes in how healthcare is practiced um, and also uh, what types of medicines uh, uh, get developed into that new new world. So we're looking at things like uh, uh, outside of biopharma, um, enabling telehealth. We have an investment in a cloud-based uh, radiology storage and file sharing to enable teleradiology when you have hospitals that are closed and imaging centers that are closed. How can we make best use of the images that are available or the few centers that are open? Or when pharma can't go detail physician practices, how do we get data and uh, and detailing information and, and promotional information to them? We have a company called Truveris that's uh, doing work like that. Or when you're thinking about rolling out a vaccine, that's really the the most complex of sort of precision medicine. If you've got a boost and prime type of situation, how do you manage that point-to-point logistics? Perhaps a company like ours that's doing that for cellular therapy, Vanetti, can play a role in the logistics and the CRM and data management in a real real platform uh, way. Just to give an anecdote, we know of a massive shipment to one of our local freight distribution centers here in the Bay Area. You know, California is actually going to be one of the largest markets for the first wave of vaccines when you think about the number of healthcare essential workers and, and the residential living of, of seniors in nursing homes. And uh, and this center received 40,000 packages of vaccines. And the big rig trucks to deliver them to the clinical sites couldn't be loaded in a timely way because there weren't enough conveyor belts or employees to unload them and to do that that packing of, uh, of the trucks from one big rig to a, a smaller van. And the employees are quitting out of frustration and exhaustion because there's not enough time to train. And the mandatory weekend shifts that are normal for the holiday season were starting weeks ahead of, of norm. 
um, and hundreds of new routes and locations are getting added. And then you have to think about the cold chain and the need for freezers and space and dry ice and scheduling and follow-up to ensure that that distribution happens. And that's in the case of, of uh, willing vaccine takers. So you can imagine the coordination and logistics that needs to happen with that. And, and we're thinking a lot about uh, what needs to happen in that in that context. And then just thinking a little bit about the therapeutic need going into uh, you know a year and a half, maybe two years of delayed and avoided care, uh, and the the general sort of morbidity of the population. We're thinking about uh, what treatments and therapeutics need to be to be addressed because of all those those delays. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let, what about challenges, guys? I mean, one of the things that's really and I don't know if it's I'd call it frustration, but many elected officials or key policy folks have come up to me since the pandemic started and said, geez, why is it so hard to invent drugs? Why is it so hard to invent a vaccine? Part of me feels like saying, well, have you been listening to me for the last 14 years? This is challenging. And there are a lot of failures. Jeremy, you you and your company has gone through a very challenging couple of weeks where you've had some, you know, less than good news. And, you know, as a cystic fibrosis dad and somebody who's been a patient advocate for years, I can't help but feel for uh, the patients that you've worked with. Can you talk a little bit about failures and what it is, you know, what it is that we need to do to work through that? <laughs> Boy, that's a, a tough one. You've hit my heart there. I know. But it's okay. Look, the bottom line is, unless somebody dares to do it, nobody tackles it. Right. And the point about failures is that if you don't learn from them and you don't encourage others to get on the case, nothing ever happens. So let's take a couple cases of failures. Ovid's just, it's failed in its pediatric phase three, didn't fail in its adults and adolescents, failed in its pediatrics, its pivotal trial for them. But if you ask the question when Ovid started in 2014, was anybody, did we have any hope that you could bend the curve on this disease? The answer was no. Nobody dared to get into it. Nobody wanted to get into it. They thought it was an impossible area. And gee whiz, keep away from it. Now, typical with biotech, the minute, the minute anybody shows a result, and this was in 2018, we showed that you could get a result. While investors didn't quite understand it, other companies did, other investors did. And so today, what you have for the Angelman community is something rather wonderful. Sure, our Neptune trial did not show any difference between placebo and effect. We know that. That's the tough bit. It's hard inside the company. Our passion is for these patients. We really want to see it. But the other side to this equation is, by golly, during that same period of time, 2018 to now, we've got 14 other companies tackling this disorder. There is no doubt in my mind that failure is an inherent form of encouragement so long as you do this in the right scientific way. Angelman's will be conquered. There are 14 different other companies taking different approaches from that which we took. And what I love about this is, in fact, nobody abandoned the area. In fact, they all feel reinforced. And I'll go one step further. In 2007, nobody believed at all in immuno-oncology. To the contrary, Pfizer left the area. Merck shelved its programs. Everybody was talking about BRAF inhibitors were the only thing for melanoma. And one company kept on going and it kept on going and it itself lost its spirit. That was Medarex. Bristol bought them. By 2019, 10 trials were being run. By 2010, sorry, by 2009, there were only 10 trials. By 2010, there were 20. 
By the end of 2019, there were 2,500 immuno-oncology trials ongoing. What was considered a failure in 2007 gave birth to an enormous area. So I think failures are part of the lifeblood of our industry. I hate it, I got to tell you, I don't like it, my team don't like it, but there's one thing that characterizes a good team. You stare at it in the face, you look at the data, you don't deny it, and you actually move on. You move on and ask the question, can I do this better? That was beautiful. Thank, thank you for sharing that because it's these failures that unlock mysteries and lead us into progress. And you talked about immuno-oncology. Think of gene therapy, right? Look at where we're at now. So you're right. So thank you for that. And I know that the Angelman's disease community truly appreciates you folks pioneering the way. And we will continue to go. And, and it's about persistence, right? And think of what's happening around vaccines as well. Let's move on to financial predictions, right? Despite everything, it's been another strong year for biotech IP and venture capital investment. We thought 2018 was an all-time high, best year in, as far as years go, and, but 2020 is exceeding it in many ways, despite the pandemic. Confidence in our industry remains high, and investors understand that biotech is more essential to our human and economic health than ever before. Nina, what, what's in store for 2021 in terms of biotech investment and I, IPOs? And are there any new ways that you're seeing that startups are being financed outside of what we would call traditional structures? Well, we're really excited about the continued pace of the capital markets and the receptivity to, to science. I think the IPO window is going to remain open and strong. I, although we continue to have some turbulence in uh, in the political climate, I think with the election being being settled and with a sense that policy uh, making will be will be embracing of science and healthcare, uh, we think the window will, will remain open and new company formation is, is continuing at a, at a great pace. I think the two things that I think are really, really exciting. One um, is is the, the emergence of, of SPACs in, in life science. And I think it's important to acknowledge that SPACs in biopharma are quite different than they are in other industries uh, because of the, the quality and sophistication of the sponsors uh, and the boards and management of the SPACs themselves and the sophistication and, and small and, and sort of intimate uh, group of, of SPAC follow-on funders. Uh, these really are company builders and really understand the technology and the assets behind these companies. So they offer a, a new vehicle for funding companies in value creation and milestone achievement that is a, a parallel path to, to an IPO or M&A. So that's uh, offering a, a third path to value creation and, and liquidity for, for investors and, and founders alike. So I think that will continue. And then I've been really gratified to see the maturation, that fantastic performance uh, by Life Science Venture Funds. You know, there's been such a long legacy of cooperation between early stage company forming investors and later stage crossover and public investors in biotech. But as the sector has matured and the science has been just phenomenal uh, and productive and the public market's embrace of earlier molecules and platform technologies, there's now more of a continuum and many firms have extended their activities one way or the other to be investing across the stage. You know, examples include Atlas and 5AM and Medici with their successful growth fund raises and are in Deerfield doing dedicated private seed vehicles. So Finova having a very successful hedge fund launch. Uh, and that sort of breadth, I think, offer an even greater opportunity uh, to, to founders and, and real strong scientific backers to partner with, with uh, investors in a very symbiotic way to create value in this industry. 
No, that's true. Very. I mean, I, I think the outlook is is so bright. Jeremy, what are some of your thoughts as it relates to financial predictions? I think Nina's put a finger on the extraordinarily interesting thing is the maturing of the biotech investor groups. It's also the availability of capital has led to, in many ways, a different dynamic, which sometimes is good, sometimes has a mixed response. The, the availability has basically said, on the good side, is that we can put a lot of money to work on a big problem quickly. And that's great. That represents an exceptionally interesting and good approach. However, what it does bring to mind that all it will take is one or two substantial big failures, and that concept will be withdrawn because the model that existed before was graduated investment over a period of time predicated on good results. Now there's a huge infusion up front, massive build, and an attack on a big problem. If you win, fantastic. Take a look at what's happened in Moderna. Just just a real win. But there are not how many Modernas are out there. You have to be very cautious on this. They represent a very significant and change in thinking of those who are deploying capital. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It simply means that you have to rely on the expertise of those who are making that kind of big play move on. The next item is really a little bit more uh, speculative. We don't know how COVID will affect the economy on a macro scale. We really don't. Not yet. And we don't know yet what that implication has for the stock market. We equally know that many of these large plays, many of these capital-intensive projects are critically dependent upon a vibrant capital market because that's how, in fact, we cycle and how we grow innovation, cycle capital and grow innovation. So for me, I I look at the marketplace, I am hesitant until we have an understanding that there is congruency of thinking within, number one, the Congress that a stimulus package is required and capable and substantial. Number two, that we uh, do not see untoward moves in the uh, new administration, which will dampen market enthusiasm by bringing in uh, restrictions on the kinds of un, un, well, uh, poorly thought through policies around pricing, which will have a dampening effect. And then number three, really, a question as to whether or not uh, if we are able to launch uh, effectively and really address the population with COVID, gen- uh, with the vaccines, generally, how will the economy come back? Or will we have to consider that, in fact, the economy is going to be focused on some very basic uh, return to business type activities, which may have less of a carry through to those areas that are important to us. So I'm I'm hesitant right now. We're in such an uncertain term to make much of a crystal ball prediction here. It's a really great, great point. I, I would say, you know, at some point, Main Street and Wall Street must meet and the reality, the impact of the pandemic on labor, healthcare, small business, state and local budgets have to impact capital markets. And we have to be very much focused as a biopharma industry on the fact that our products will be facing largely public health budgets in the years to come with so much shifting of employment into uh, uh, into a uh, uh, Medicaid-covered or Medicare-covered uh, budgets. And so I think that's something that we absolutely have to to be mindful of. And I also really want to echo Jeremy's sentiment. You know, we were very fortunate at Canaan to raise 
raise a new $800 million fund this year in the midst of a pandemic and are ever grateful to our uh, LPs and, and founders who, who have supported our ability to do that. But our, our investment thesis will, will remain you know, very focused on company building around strong theses and, and much more sort of milestone-gated investment for exactly that reason, because uh, we really look at the, at the long-term perspective and want to make sure that we can build value and generate liquidity in, in any market. And we don't want to take this incredible bull run for, for granted. Before we move on to headwinds for 2021, let's just wrap this financial prediction conversation up. But I, I need a little, I, I need your input. Why what do I say to people when they say, geez, Bob, why? There's been so many IPOs in the last two quarters and in the midst of a pandemic. Why do you think Wall Street continues to reward uh, these innovative companies? Well, be careful when you say reward. You, okay. have mom- you have momentum here. The stock market is rising. People need to put their money somewhere. Yeah. And so there's a lot of cash sloshing around. So the real question is not uh, are they being is Wall Street continuing to reward them? The real question is are those who really are in the business of company building and long-term holders actually investing, or are you seeing fair-weather friends who are going to ride the market, ride the ride the momentum, and then walk away with the minute there's a problem? Now we've seen this in the past. Yeah, when the market rises, people come in. And then, Lord alone knows, when something turns, they are the first out of the door, leaving the Wellingtons, leaving the Fidelities, leaving the real, true professional investors, long-term holders there, who eventually make money out of it, because otherwise they wouldn't be there. But the reality is, you have a host of new investors. I believe somebody, I saw a figure the other day, saying that coming into biotech, first-time investors in biotech, and Nina, please correct me, in the public markets, represented more than 60% of all new investors in the area. That tells you something right there. It's good, but it has a risk to it. Yeah, what are your thoughts, Nina? I, I would concur with Jeremy. I think there's been a, you know, a, a general lift in the enthusiasm for life science because of the interest in, in the vaccines. It's turned mm-hmm. an eye towards our sector and new inflows for sure. And that coupled with the fact that technology and healthcare, including life science, have been the only sectors that have really been accretive at a time where every other sector has really been so negatively impacted by the pandemic. That said, I think the fundamentals of our industry are as strong as they have ever been. The scientific tools that are available to explore new and known targets and the speed with which we can iterate chemistry against those and the new modalities uh, at our uh, avail for, for therapeutic generation are greater than they've ever been. So I think the reasons to believe in biotech uh, are are so, so strong. However, Jeremy pointed out that a lot of the new issuances are, I think, very early stage and have yet to prove themselves with, a, with clinical data. And so there's, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, risk, one might say, in uh, in those new issuances. And uh, all you need is, is some negative card turns uh, to maybe change that sentiment, as well as general economic recovery to offer other places where people can put their money. But I'm an early stage biotech investor, so mm-hmm. I would end on, a, on an upswing and say there are more reasons to believe than, than not. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. We're going to pause for a brief moment to introduce you to one of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Today's episode of State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. The competition for talent has become a serious challenge for the life sciences industry. The ability to hire, retain, and align great people 
is imperative to solving the most pressing medical issues. But the competition has become highly complex, with global networks, changing views of careers, and rapidly evolving employee demands. That's where Morgan Stanley at Work can help. Our comprehensive suite of workplace financial solutions is dedicated to helping you better attract, retain, and reward your employees so you can focus on the science. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash at work. We now return to State of Possible Podcast with Bob Coughlin. Let's talk about headwinds for 2021 moving forward. And, you know, I just can't help but look at 2020 and think of how the biopharma industry went from being the most poorly regarded industry among Americans to the single beacon of hope to pull us out of this pandemic. Well, I will say for the record, ladies and gentlemen, that the life science industry has always been my beacon for hope and my family's beacon for hope because we didn't want my son with cystic fibrosis to die, okay? But yet it's been a huge challenge trying to educate the public and and let them know that, hey, we're the industry that actually creates tomorrows and, and, and solves unmet medical need. We're coming into the start of a new presidential administration, bringing with it new people and new ideas. And I will say some of these appointments so far, I could not be more excited. So we're going to have to talk about how do we address drug pricing policy and a new perception of our industry moving forward. Jeremy, you and I have had these conversations several times as chair of bio national you have a front row seat to what's going on in washington dc what do you predict for drug pricing under a biden administration and what is it that we need to do to improve our reputation oh my gosh bob what a big <laughs> question. series of questions you know you want to take this guy i love it i love it <laughs> I, I, would, I pass would love to give it a try i would love to give it a I try love it. I, will, yeah, so, I will take the soapbox for our industry any day Go for it, and I'll come, I'll follow on straight after. I'm not avoiding it, Bob. No, we're coming. I'm not going to let you avoid it, Jeremy. You know I'm coming back. <laughs> but I actually do want to hear Nina's response yes. because Nina sees these companies every single day. She's the one who puts money on the line every mm-hmm. day to mm-hmm. support them. And so I'd love to hear that, and I'll come back if that's okay. Perfectly okay. Look, I, I think Jeremy and I have spoken about this before, and I, I will bend anyone's ear who will, will listen on this because uh, I think it is about the story that we tell. And I am so grateful, so grateful that this pandemic time has shined a bright light on our industry and, and what we can can do. And we just need to keep telling the story of biotech as best we can and better than we often do. You know, all... All the entrepreneurs and executives in our portfolio at Canaan, really down to just about a person level, do this work because of the love of the science and the the wish and the desire to help people. You know, at our end of the ecosystem, especially at the early stage, nobody ever talks about WAC plus 5% or how do we achieve 3% annual price increases across the portfolio. We literally celebrate tumor shrinking in mice or when old rats can find a treat in a water maze because of molecules that we've made. And we hold our breath with every single patient that gets dosed with our new medicines. We're all in it to make a difference. And sure, there's, you know, upside and and reward um, and the money can be a heck of a carrot, but it's way faster and easier to go chase those carrots and, you know, online apps for food delivery or internet search or social media. So I think we in biotech, we just have to tell the story of our, sweat of our failures of our love of 
the science and the patient focus and of the quirky but amazing genius that's in our small and mighty companies and let that shine for why we do what we do and to be differentiated from and distinguished from the potential profit that comes in the pharmaceutical industry. Biotech is not that end of the spectrum. We need to tell that story uh, as best we can and better than we often do. We sure do. We sure do. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Okay, this is such a fun thing. We, as an industry, and, I, and I'm going to use the term, the industry that produces medicines, allowed ourselves to be shot in the foot repeatedly for the last 20 years. We allowed ourselves to be defined by a number of really very bad practices. For example, raising prices on old drugs where you never did a clinical trial, you never invested in anything to prove that it was beneficial, you never changed the drug whatsoever. And in fact, this led to a large number of lazy uh, organizations where you'd have executives being rewarded for top line increases in price where they never increased value in their companies, period. Now, the converse has always been true of biotech. Biotech basically lives and dies by innovation and lives and dies by focusing on patients. So I think this year, as we see the new administration come in, it is absolutely incumbent on ourselves, bio, the industry, to bring to the attention of every single regulator, every single policymaker, and not just at the central level, but at the state level, to the fact that this industry, the biotech industry, is about innovation and patience. And that's one message. That's it. The second is that we need to ensure that when we see bad actors, we shouldn't be ashamed. It's time to talk out. That's As right. an industry, everybody's quiet and anxious and sorry about this. Come on. You've got to call out those things that don't represent the value of the industry. Otherwise, you're betraying your investors. You are allowing something which is fundamental to the industry, its reputation, to be tarnished. And when you get a tarnished reputation, that opens the door for all sorts of legislative actions because you, Bob, particularly will know legislators love somebody who's down. You can beat them. If you've got a oh, bad gun, yeah. you can beat them and nobody cares. Well, biotech is a national strategic asset. We've just proved it. It's an asset of absolutely incontrovertible value. And the consequences of us now taking the opportunity to display that to everybody, to ensure that we embed not just what we've done, what we continue to do, but the values that underlie it are essential. And I have to take my hat off to what we, and you've seen it, Bob, you've been one of those to call out how much you like it. The shift in approach that the new CEO of Bio has taken, Michelle McMurray-Heath, is focusing only on value in patience and innovation. And we will have to tackle the likely introduction of a number of different pricing initiatives. One, for example, like it's, a, it's really a, a, a landmine which is been dropped on us by the current president who appears not to understand one bit or care one bit about what is going on in the industry is the idea that you're going to have most favored nation. Most favored nation pricing, a basket of prices from OEC countries around the world. I'm not sure it's legal, by the way, but that having been said, will put a dampener 
across all innovation. So I do think we need to spend time with the incoming administration, educating them, talking to them, persuading them. We have a heavy lift here. Some of them won't even talk to people who've been in the industry. I hope, I really do sincerely hope, people like Nina, people like myself, people like Peter Kolchinsky, others across the industry, CEOs who are really focused completely on innovation can galvanize around bio, around mass, mass bio as well, around every single regional bio and make sure that we get to the state houses, make sure that we get to the local congressmen and congresswomen, make sure that we get to the senators and at least send the message that we're about the nation. This is a strategic asset. Don't bleed out its lifeblood by putting in place ill-conceived policies. And I would say one last thing. I'm not against thoughtful, measured price control. I do want it to be addressing those things that are not innovative. Those things where the idea that a, you can raise a price every year. But when we do that, let's also take cognizance of the fact that much of that price rise falls into the pockets of the PBMs, the yeah. insurers. And boy, if we don't take cognizance of that, then we're falling short. We're just saying that it's all down to us. It isn't. This is a an ecosystem. And that ecosystem needs to be treated holistically by policymakers. I, I, I wish you two could see me right now because I'm standing up doing a standing ovation here at the MassBio headquarters because I love, I absolutely love what you have to say, Jeremy. Nina, I love what you have to say. And this is what I do for a living each and every day, meeting with key opinion leaders and legislators on the state and federal level. And there is so much good going on. And, and Jeremy, kudos to you and the entire bio board because Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath has been doing an extraordinary job in such a short amount of time. Let's focus on science. Let's focus on added value. And let's talk about improving the quality of patients' lives, right? That's what we do. And I, I'm getting really excited, but thank you. I can't thank the both of you enough for what you do each and every day. You are the reason that it's such an honor for me to work in this industry alongside the smartest people in the world trying to solve unmet medical need in some cases for patients that they know, in most cases for patients they don't know. As you can tell, I'm getting excited here. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. We're going to pause for a brief moment to introduce you to one of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Marsh & McLennan Agency is a regional insurance brokerage firm with access to global resources focused on the life science community, representing over 1,000 biotechs across the U.S. We work with life science companies from conception, clinical trials, and product launch to domestic and global expansion, and provide products, service, expertise, and advocacy in the areas of employee benefits, risk management, liability, and more. Visit MarshMMA.com to learn why we are the partner of choice for VC firms, service providers, and life science advocates. That's MarshMMA.com. I want to thank Nina Shelson and Jeremy Levin for joining me on today's episode of the State of Possible podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, for them to provide their insights on what's ahead for the biopharma industry in 2021 and taking time to do that, we can't thank you enough. Although there will certainly be some unintended consequences of COVID-19, I also hope that we will see positive disruption from this period. 2021 will not 
be without its challenges, but the future for patients looks brighter than ever as the biopharma industry continues to innovate in incredible ways. I wish you, our listeners, a happy and healthy end to 2020 and an even better start to 2021. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, Thermo Fisher Scientific, and Marsh and McLennan Agency for your support of this podcast. Have a great day, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us on the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. A special thanks to Jenny Nason and Zach Stanley of MassBio, as well as Jordan Rich of Chart Productions. You can listen to the State of Possible podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in and with all android players please subscribe rate and review the podcast using your favorite directory finally if you know anyone who should be featured on this podcast please contact us at communications at massbio.org